we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, and this week is week six, and we're in chapter four, so let's just get straight into it. And this is a famous passage about the power of the word. All right, so it's Hebrews 4, uh, verses 12 to 13. Only two verses this week, you'll be pleased to know. So here we go. For the word of God is alive and powerful. Amen? Amen. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Yeah. It, it is woohoo, but sometimes we don't think it is, but it is. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. This bit's not so woohoo. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. So why is the author of Hebrews suddenly talking about the Bible, the Word? And you might remember last week, you know, there was this warning and an encouragement for his, his readers um, you know, listen to the scriptures about entering God's rest. And, and, he, and, and as we've found when we've been reading through, Psalm, uh, through Psalms, through Hebrews, there's a lot of Psalms quoted. There's a lot of references back to the scripture, what we call the Old Testament today. And he was reminding them, he reminds them about the story of the Israelites crossing into Canaan and about their promised rest. So he makes this point. The Bible, which this author quotes from extensively, you know, this is not just an accident. This Bible is not just an accident. It's not irrelevant. It's not an out-of-date book filled with words that we are hard to understand. There's something about it. There's something about this book that has power. And, and he's reminding the church. In Rome, they were at this time. There's something about this. Okay, it didn't look like this. All right, this one that I'm holding up today, obviously. But the scriptures that they had... He's not saying the Bible itself is some kind of spiritual being. He's saying that the word is alive because it's God's word. It's not just a record of events. It has power and, it, and, and a purpose, and it gives us life. Now, in my opinion, in the opinion of millions of others, the Bible not only provides an explanation for the world, for why and how we exist, but also an explanation for our destiny. It's a book of answers to the reason for life, and it's also sufficient for our salvation. There's no other book that actually can explain things like the Bible does. Nothing compares to it. Most people who discount it haven't really taken the time to read it and study it and understand it because to understand the Bible is to understand God or at least you know, to a point where us as humans can understand God. And I want to encourage you. you know, if you haven't even decided yet about about God, then try studying the Bible. Like, do an in-depth study before you discount it. Read, read some people who, who, have, who know their, what they're talking about, you know, the, the theologians and, um, and, and the interpreters and those who, who understand these ancient languages and how they, they, um, they all come together and how they speak to us today. But to help us get started today, we're going to watch a short introduction or a short video from the guys at the Bible Project. Thanks. Thanks, John. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? 
Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible. What's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five-book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believed that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this Second Temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We've got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? 
So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years, and from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But how does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. So that was part one of four, by the way, in the introduction series. And I, I would encourage you to go watch the other three. Uh, in fact, all their videos are excellent and, and a, really, uh, a really good tool, by the way. That's thebibleproject.com. If you've never been there, you should. And they've got introductions to every book of the Bible, and they cover a lot of themes as well to help us understand, because sometimes it's hard to understand, isn't it? We are thousands of years after these uh, after everything was written in here. And so I encourage you to do that. But there's so much to cover about this amazing book. And the Bible Project guys said the authors were literary, ge literary geniuses. I can barely even say it. Literary geniuses. We believe that's the case because we see the Bible as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, and it has to be, you know. It's, it's a collection of books and they just align so well together. Over thousands of years, surely the Holy Spirit must have been at work for it to all work out like that. Humans couldn't do that. God had to inspire these writings so that the pieces of the puzzle, if that's a way to say it, would fit together so well and his mysterious plan would be revealed to us. So the question um, you might be asking this morning is, well, can I trust the Bible? And I say absolutely, absolutely you can. There isn't any other book that's been so closely scrutinized and studied and pulled apart as the Bible has. Over 40 earth authors, over 1,600 years, and it all works. Like, just think about that for a minute. That's amazing. There's historians outside of the Bible that confirm much of the historical accounts from the New Testament. There's a science around ancient writings called textual criticism, and it puts the Bible ahead of many of the other ancient historical writings, writings that aren't ever or generally aren't put to question. Now, the Alpha Course has a really good short segment uh, from this from Alistair McGrath, and we know him right from the series we did on Introduction to Theology, do you remember? And so since we're doing videos this morning, I thought, let's have a, a little look at what he has to say about textual criticism this morning. Jesus of Nazareth is believed to have walked these streets around 2,000 years ago. But is there any evidence that he even existed? Well, there's actually quite a lot of evidence. No serious historian would deny that Jesus existed. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius wrote about Jesus, as did the first century Jewish historian Josephus. He described him as Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to describe his crucifixion and alleged resurrection. So there's evidence outside of the New Testament for the existence of Jesus, but most of the evidence comes from within inside the New Testament. And sometimes people say, well, the New Testament was written such a long time ago. How do we know what was written down hasn't been changed over the years? Well, the answer is that we do know because of a science called textual criticism. 
Contextual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today, and it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Professor F.J.A. Hort, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, concluded that, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And no secular historian would disagree with that conclusion. Let's just take a look at that, that quote there that we finished with. In the variety and fullness of the evidence of which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. You know, it's just, as you grow up in the church, we don't really understand where this comes from because we have so many of them around us. But it's actually an amazing um, historical um, yes, ancient, but still alive and powerful book for us today. So why should I read it then? And if I had to answer that in one sentence, it would be this. It's through the Bible that we encounter the living God, the creator and sustainer of all things, and his answers for life. You know, this is the book that gives us answers. This is the book that unveils many of the mysteries of life. This is the book, according to Hebrews, that cuts to the heart in a powerful way. It's the Bible that explains why the world is a mess and, and so broken. You know, that's often the question that people will have for us as Christians. Well, why, is, why are things so bad if God exists? It's the Bible that reveals Jesus as the answer to restore that broken world. 
It's the Bible that reveals our future, and it's the Bible that helps us to see who we are before God and our desperate need for Him. This is the book that teaches us and changes us and leads us out of our inward-focused, sinful, broken life and into a new life of redemption and holiness. And as Jesus puts it, it's a life to the full. And when you read the Bible, you, you know what Hebrews means when, when it says it exposes our thoughts and desires. It's extremely sharp at times. You know, it, it penetrates heart and mind. And it kind of causes pain, the right kind of pain. You know, the one that wakes us up. And, and it does that not to destroy or condemn us, but to change us, to give us life. Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives and it corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. So it's also a book that tells us what we're doing wrong. <laughs> you know, it is a bit of a manual to life in some ways. Which is probably why a lot of the world is not really interested in it, because God's idea of what is wrong and what is right is, is far removed, right, from what the world says. But quite frankly, I find it liberating. You know, knowing God's plan for me, for, for us, for the world, knowing what's good for us and, and having clear boundaries is a good life. A life that was God's intention for us before we broke it. It's liberating and it's exciting. Being part of the new creation is where we want to be. Discovering and going after God's vision for humanity brings great reward and satisfaction. God's vision for, for community is the best vision. God's vision for the church. God's vision for marriage and sexuality. God's vision for justice. God's vision for equality. God's vision for holiness. That's the best vision for the world. And it's a good vision. It's an exciting one, and it's in here. It paints a beautiful vision for us. And you know, as pastors, we, we often do vision casting with the church. We, we look at growth and the numbers and programs and ministries, all brilliant stuff, which, which I do myself and I'll continue to do. But more than anything, God has given us a vision for us and how we live our life and our communities and how they should function. The Bible paints that beautiful new creation picture, and, and we are a reflection of it. And when we read God's word and allow it to confront us and convict us and change us, that vision, you know, we just take a tiny step forward to making it a reality. We change. We start to live out the new creation, and we do it together. The Bible not only changes us, it helps us in times of trouble. It provides guidance when we're unsure what to do. It talks about health and healing. It arms you with truth about spiritual attacks that come our way. It brings spiritual power into our lives to live the way we're supposed to. It provides words of comfort and peace in times of trouble. And we've all been in those times. There's teaching around marriage and singleness and relationships and church life and spiritual gifts and sin and deception. There's teaching around equality and love and healing and prayer and evil and purpose and forgiveness and compassion and peace and joy and money and generosity and much, much more. 
It's better than any self-help book. In one way, it's the ultimate self-help book, except it's not centered around self. It's centered around the source of our help, which is Jesus. And the power to help ourselves be like him is the Holy Spirit. And we find his way is the best way. Have you ever found that? When you actually change because you're convicted by something in the word, and then you go, oh, actually, God's way was the best way. So how can we read and apply the Bible? Now, I'm very aware that you've probably heard many, many sermons about the Bible, even from me. But it's in the scriptures. It's what we're up to today. If the authors find the need to repeat things for our benefit, then we'll repeat things for our benefit, yeah? But this is our foundation. It's our source material. As soon as a Christian or a church or a denomination relegates the word to a minor place, we drift. Remember, back in chapter 2, that's what the author of Hebrews was saying to this church. Hey guys, you're drifting. For them, a lot of it was around persecution and stuff like that, stuff that we may not fully understand. But that warning was there. You're drifting. And so my warning this morning is you stop reading God's word, you drift. In fact, I will guarantee it. If you stop reading it, you will drift. Has everyone, anyone ever seen that video that was shared around a few years back? And it was, um, it was a church in China, and they got their first delivery of Bibles in their own language. Does it, did anyone see that come through? And they pulled back the plastic, and they ran and got their Bible. And there was all these pictures of them crying with just tears coming down their, their face. And it was beautiful to watch because if you're like me, you've probably got four of these at home, right? And I bet you you don't cry when you see it on the shelf. That's okay. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty because you don't cry. I'm just saying it, it must be sometimes it's more precious than we remember. I love hearing the stories from uh, Mark and Kathy Tabor. It was so good that we were praying for them this morning. And in fact, they're probably watching us online today. They often do on a Sunday morning, they're Bible translators with, with Wycliffe. And they will, they will often, when they send out their newsletters, they'll put little testimonies of people who have received a Bible in their own language for the first time. And again, the tears and the way God speaks to them through their, through their word. It changes them. These scriptures about the power of God's word, it's witnessed through their testimonies. Imagine the New Testament church when a, a letter written by Paul arrived at your church. Just one copy. You know, we, there was no screen. There was no phones for you to open and follow along or your, or a, your written copy for you to read. This letter arrives and it's your, church, your church's turn to read it. And if you're really fortunate, perhaps there's someone that you know, perhaps they're even in your church, that could make a copy. And I can picture the place packed. Priority number one, gather and read this thing. It's precious. And we stand in deep thought and consideration about what God is saying to us. Imagine the conversations, the realization about where God wants us to change. Imagine the eagerness to learn and study further. You know, pastor, don't pass this on to the next church too quickly. We want to study it. So how can we 
How can we do that? How can we read and apply it? Well, the first, the first answer is the, is the obvious one. We, we have to actually do in-depth studies of, of our Bibles. There are many attributes to the Bible to study, but how we interpret the Bible that we study for our application is very important. You know, when I was doing one of my hermeneutics subjects, um, one, of the sub, one of the textbooks we used was called Grasping God's Word, and it, it's just a brilliant textbook, and it uses a great illustration to explain the interpretive journey. It's going to be on the screen behind me in a second. And I want to just talk you through this a little bit. The reason we have to do an interpretive journey is simply because we're reading a collection of writings from a time and a culture that we don't always relate to very well. They're a long way from us. They're distant in time and sometimes even in location. In fact, always in location. <laughs> so while the truth of the Bible is timeless, its context needs to be understood so that we do a good job of interpreting that timeless truth and so that we don't misinterpret the message. So let me just talk you through this really quick. The first thing we do, number one, up there in the top left-hand corner, is we grasp the text in their own town. You know, what did the text mean to the original audience? That's the question we have to ask. We have to put ourselves in their shoes and understand who the original audience was and what it would have meant for them. The second thing, number two there, is we have to measure the width of the river to cross. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? How big is the difference? Sometimes that river is wide. You know, the gap between us, for example, and the Israelites in, in Egypt and the life that they had to live and the, the, the cultural context there is big. It's a really wide gap. It's a wide river. And we need to consider when we're interpreting the text from, say, Exodus or something like that, and we want to apply it today, is we have to measure the width of that river and we have to consciously think about how wide that river is. The third thing is you've got to cross the principalizing bridge. What is the theological principle of the text? Or what is the principle of the text? This is perhaps the most challenging step. It's when we're looking for the principle or principles that are in the text that we're going to bring across that bridge into our own time. This is not about creating our own meaning, by the way. Don't think that for a second. This is about finding the truth, the timeless principle that the text is teaching us. The fourth thing is you've got to consult the biblical map. How does our principle fit the rest of the Bible? You know, this is a really important step. Uh, we can't misinterpret the text. Essentially, our principle must be consistent with the rest of Scripture. Otherwise, we're probably misinterpreting. You know, one of the, the foundations for hermeneutics is that Scripture interprets Scripture. If you've got an interpretation and it somehow it's clashing with the rest of Scripture, you've probably got it wrong. You've got to think about that. The last thing is grasping the text in our own town. Number five. Over there. How should individual Christians today live out that principle, that theological truth that you've brought out of the text? Which is why we study the Bible in the first place. Beyond uh, increased knowledge, which is great. But if there's no life application, we're kind of missing the purpose of it. By the way, I have about uh, 20 copies of this chapter from that textbook on those five steps. And if you're interested, please come and see me at the end of the service and I'll give you that. Again, less than 10% of the textbook, so we're good for copyright, okay? <laughs> Just keep mentioning that. All right. 
So studying God's word, study it, going deep. You know, this is why sometimes we do uh, small groups that go beyond just our devotional life. Understanding it with depth. But the second one is through our devotions. You know, every person that I know who is an obvious man or woman of God, who walks closely, who has fruit of the Spirit just falling out of them, has a, really, has a devotional life, a good devotional life, without fail. Every single one, consistent, daily, devotional life that includes reading and applying the Word because there's no way around it. Like anything good that you're wanting to achieve in life, there's investment and discipline involved. You know, sometimes we'll do that investment and discipline with other parts of our life, but our, our faith, our Christianity, our, our, you know, our church life, well, no one's checking up on me, so it's, it's okay. I'll let that slide. But it's not. You know, fitness, for example, which I probably shouldn't be using this as an example because... I'm not that fit, but it takes discipline through good diet and exercise. There's no other way. There's no shortcut, is there? We wish there was. If someone invents the pill that makes me fit and healthy, they will be a very rich person. But there is no other way. You know, a good relationship with your close friends takes the discipline of regular time together. We want to hear from God. So we need the discipline of spending time with him. Uh, you know, I've preached on prayer and fasting and those things. You know, worship, church, life, all those things are very important. But number one on their list is hearing him speak. Remember that video, the introduction video? They kept saying this was how God was speaking to them. Hearing God speak through his word. And so again, again, as your pastor, I appeal to you. I encourage you again to make a plan. Find a time to stop for 10 or 20 minutes per day or more. Don't limit it to 10 or 20 minutes if you want to go longer. Find a place. Find a really good place, a solitary place. Tell yourself that this is my sacred space. It's just me and God and me hearing from him. Find a place. Find a pattern. You know, work out a pattern. Before you pray, perhaps read... Before you even read the word, we should be praying, Holy Spirit, speak to me today through your word. Help me to understand. You know, you should consider a reading plan. We have so many reading plan options today. We are spoiled for choice because we can do them online on our devices. Or you can get a, a manual one. I encourage you to do that. I always, if people ask me where to start, I always recommend the one from, um, from Alpha, uh, from Nikki Gumbel called um, The Bible in One Year. Thank you, darling. Because um, you do it, right? And it's really good, and it can be audio version too. For those of you that are going, oh, not something to read, please. There's an audio version. Don't miss that. Because Jesus says in Matthew 7, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. This is foundational for us. Hearing God speak through his work is foundational. You know, take notes. Take notes. Or if you don't like writing, record it on your phone or something. I'm just trying to say, make, get something that works for you. Do it on your way to work in the train or the bus. You know, get up early. Do it before you go to, to sleep at night. In your lunch hour, find a pattern. Put together a plan. 
put it to prayer. You know, it's interesting how God speaks through his word. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's not uncommon to have some of you occasionally approach me after a Sunday and say, thank you for the word today, Pastor. And then you'll tell me what I preached and how it spoke to you. And often I'll walk away thinking, I don't think I said that. <laughs> but it's usually a really good thing. Because God speaks through his word. And when you read that same passage that you've read five, ten times before, I promise you there's something new in it for you. There's something new in it for you. That was the point I was trying to make. When I was in my mid-30s, God talked to me through a scripture in John 15 that changed my life. It's a scripture I had read many times. I'd heard it in Sunday school and youth group. Uh, the pastor... The pastors love John 15, so I'd heard it preached many times, and yet for some reason, this time, it changed me. I wasn't expecting it. It was out of the blue. I was doing a soap Bible study. A soap is when you do scripture observation, application, and prayer. So I was just simply reading it, looking for observations and applications, and then the power that Hebrews talks about, the sharp sword got me. Let me read that passage to you. You know this passage well. In John 15, Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Like I said, I, I've, I've read this countless times before. But it was in this moment I, I just heard something different. I realized, I realized, I think I was a bit like that branch, the withered one. I was hearing something different. I realized I couldn't, I don't think I had the fruit that Jesus said was what true disciples had. And so perhaps I wasn't bringing glory to my Father. I felt like God said, Nathan, where's your fruit? And this was a defining moment. Yes, okay, it's conviction, but it was the start of something really wonderful for me. Okay, that, that sword was sharp. You know, but it was, I praise God for it. I can't claim like an Alders Gate experience like John Wesley had. I'm not sure if he'd call it a baptism of the Holy Spirit or anything like that. I've had those moments in my life that are like that. This was simply God's word, like a sharp sword, alive and powerful. And I've never looked back from that day in my walk with the Lord. This thing, if I wasn't reading it that day, I don't know if I would be here right now. God's word is alive and powerful. We should read it. 
In fact, I've started talking to the staff. You know, we've done this a couple times here where we've read the whole New Testament together. Does anyone remember that? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> the masks are off. I need to see some, you know, <laughs> recognition of what I'm talking about here. Uh, they're my favorite times as a church. You know, we've read the Immersed Bible where they strip out all the verse numbers and chapter numbers, and it's just like, well, not just like, but it's still a printed book, but it's kind of like how it used to be. And we read it together, and we did them in our small groups, and it was great. So next year, there's a, another version we're going to look at called The Story. But this time, it's not just the New Testament. It's an abridged version of the entire Bible. It's an NIV translation, and it's in chronological order. Not just the books, the chapters. You know, so you can be reading Kings, and in comes one of the prophets. And they've, they, they have taken, because it's a bridge, so it's not a full Bible, they've taken out some repetition and other things. And just to kind of make it readable together. All right? So we're not trying to change the Bible here. Please don't think that. <laughs> we're looking at doing that next year as, a, as the whole church together. And some of the small groups are going to do specific studies and we're looking to see if it works well for the kids and perhaps the youth as well. And we're going to, as a church together, read the story. Read the Bible together. Stay tuned. Yeah, is anyone else excited besides Mark? Yes. Here's what I was thinking last night when I was tidying up my notes for today. Changed my conclusion. I thought, if Jesus was still on earth and I could book him to come and speak on a Sunday... What would it look like? Yes. I would suspect we wouldn't have enough seats. Now, even if we restricted it to just Hills Church people, which we wouldn't over, never do, I'm just saying, of course, but just for this, the sake of this point, we would still run out of seats. We'd have to get every seat out of that corner and pack them in because we want to know what Jesus would say, don't we? I bet no one would run late that day. I bet the singing would be amazing. <laughs> I reckon the worship team would practice more than once that week. I wonder what the offering would be like, just saying. <laughs> when Jesus comes to the pulpit to speak, I, I think you'd be hanging off every word, sitting on the edge of your seat, Probably, I would ban you from holding your phones up and recording it, but I would not ban you from having a pen and paper to take notes. <laughs> There'd probably be no time limit on the sermon that day. No one would be getting anxious if the preacher went past 30 minutes. <laughs> Tea and coffee can wait. I guarantee his words would be cutting through, just as Hebrews said. I suspect the prayer team would be really busy. Maybe Jesus would have the biggest line, but we would, that's okay. <laughs> the point is that Jesus' words are not only recorded for you to read every day and every Sunday here together. They're alive and powerful, just like they were for the original hearers. You know, God put power into this, okay? It changes us for the better to be like Him. Love God's word, church. Love it. If you don't understand it, get some help. It's okay. 
I need help. Trust me, I need help with working out some of this. <laughs> That's okay. That's why we're all here. Embrace it. Know it. Know Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you, um, the Holy Spirit inspired your apostles and prophets and others to write it all down for us. And it all checked out. It's accurate. It's true. Billions of people have read it and testified to that, Lord. That means something. So God, we want to be people of your word because that's how we know you. That's how we live for you. That's the best life now is when we read and study and apply your word, when it changes us, when it changes our heart, when it changes our mind, and people say, that person's a kind of reminds me of Jesus. Lord, let that be all of us here today. I pray, God, for everyone here this morning, Lord, that you will help them find a way, that you will help them remove the distractions, that you will help them be, do the discipline, Lord, that you will uh, help, or you will empower their devotional life, Lord, to be um, not boring and, uh, you know, not something we have to drag ourselves to, but something that we look forward to every day, God, because we're hearing from you. I pray, Lord, that over every single person here, help us to know you more through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>